the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. God still heals people. He does it in His time and according to His plan. And sometimes he does it miraculously, sometimes he does it medically, and sometimes he does it eternally by taking somebody home. And we cannot pigeonhole God into, this is what you must do. We should pray and believe because he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can hope or imagine, but we have to leave the final results up to him. And whether he chooses to heal miraculously, medically, or eternally is up to God. But what was most important to Jesus was not this guy's physical condition, it was his heart. Did you know that God still heals people today? Pastor Gary reminds you today to keep praying for healing and to look for the ways in which God answers. He may bring healing miraculously, or it might be through the hands of medical professionals. He's gifted with incredible talent, or it might be the ultimate healing with God in heaven. Whatever the method, God knows the perfect solution for each individual. So pray and believe. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 2, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Well, here in chapter 2, it tells us that the location, once again, of this scene is the city of Capernaum, the town of Capernaum. It says in verse 1 that a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Notice that it was considered his home base. Although he was born in Bethlehem and he was raised in Nazareth, his public ministry will by and large be based here in Capernaum. This is that place where Jesus uh, would have ministered there in the Capernaum, uh, in the synagogue of Capernaum. And uh, they have uncovered along the, the coast there of the Sea of Galilee a, an ancient wall that was about a half a mile long along the coast there, about 2,500 feet. And it was an eight foot high uh, wall that, uh, seawall that stood there to support what was apparently like a promenade. So there would have been like a, lo- a long walkway about a half a mile along the coast there of the Mediterranean back in Jesus' day, sorry, the Sea of Galilee back in Jesus' day, and an eight foot high seawall to, uh, to protect, uh, the winds and, and the storm and the waters surging and buffeting the, the town of Capernaum. And so there would have been several docking areas there for fishing boats. There were 12 ancient fishing uh, towns located around the Sea of Galilee from dating back to the time of Jesus. Only a couple have been preserved, and this is one of them, Capernaum. So this is home for Jesus. And so he comes back home here, and it tells us in verse 2, I'm going to read down through verse uh, 12, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Verse 2 says, So many gathered, so many gathered, that there was no room left. 
not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So here Jesus is located here in Capernaum in a home. It may have been Simon Peter's home. It isn't descriptive for us, but he is in a home, and it tells us that the crowds have gathered, and there are so many people that uh, this one guy in need can't get to Jesus, aside from the fact that he's a paralytic. His friends can't get him to Jesus. And when you look at this story here that we just read, there are a few principal players in this story. There's some main characters here. Obviously, you have the four friends, It tells us that there were uh, four of them uh, in verse 3. You have the paralytic, the one who's going to get healed in this story, and you have the teachers of the law. You also have the other people who were just in the home and outside the home, around uh, the home, and then, of course, you have Jesus uh, in this story. And I think that each of them teach us something. So when you look at the four friends, they teach us something. When you look at the paralytic, they teach, he teaches us something, and so on. And so when it comes, first of all, to the four friends, I want you to notice, for you note-takers, their persistence. This is a wonderful lesson and a great example for all of us. Why? Because here they come to this house that is completely jam-packed. People have come to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. What is he doing? He's preaching the word, it tells us. This is a time he's ministering the word of God. Notice that he says that in verse 2, and he preached the word to them. Uh, but here he is preaching and he's teaching them. And the room of this house is so packed with people that here come four friends who have a friend who's a paralytic and they want to get the paralytic to Jesus so that Jesus might heal him, but they can't. So what do they do? The Bible says they go up on the roof. And a lot of times in those ancient times that there was actually an outer staircase that went up to the roof. It was an extension of the home. And uh, so this is what these guys did in order to get their friend to Jesus. And the Bible says that they just start ripping open the roof. Now, in those days, again, you know, it wasn't constructed like our roofs are today. So you have basically thatch roofs. You have wooden beams, probably. You have thatch roofs. You have perhaps, you know, clay roofs of some kind. But it wasn't that difficult to to break open the roof. But these guys, nevertheless, are going to do this because they're going to great lengths to get their friend to Jesus. They're carrying him on a mat, the Bible says, so I just am trying to imagine that either they are lowering him themselves by the four corners of the mat, or maybe they have ropes, it doesn't really tell us how they lower him down, but they have their paralytic friend, and they are lowering him down from the roof of this house to get him to Jesus. Imagine Jesus in the middle of teaching and preaching, and all of a sudden there's dust and debris, and there's chaos in the house, and everybody's looking up, and now you can see daylight, and being lowered is this guy on a mat. 
But what I love about this story, learning from the example of these four friends, is that they go to great lengths. They won't stop until they get their friend to Jesus. And that's challenging to me. Because some of us won't walk across the street to bring our friend to Jesus. Some of us work next to somebody in a cubicle and we won't even walk around to the cubicle to lead someone to Jesus. It's very challenging. What lengths do you and I go to in bringing our friends to Jesus? I love their persistence that they model here. And I also love their faith. Their faith. Because it says here in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, Notice it was not the faith of the paralytic. Now, then maybe the paralytic had faith, but Jesus is not commending the paralytic's faith. In his heart, Jesus is taking note of the faith of the four friends. And notice here it says that, they, that Jesus saw their faith. How do you see someone's faith? Well, the answer to that is that faith, really, in its purest form, is not a set of beliefs but it is action. Faith is in practice here, and that's what Jesus notices. In fact, James, when he would write his epistle uh, in James chapter 2, James would say in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith. Listen to what James says. It's James 2.18. I will show you my faith by what I do. By what I do. And further there in in James chapter 2 and verse 22, when he is commending Abraham for his faith, he says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Faith is an action, friends. It is not standing idly by and just having a set of beliefs in the Lord, though that is faith in God, but faith in practice is doing what you believe. It is putting into practice what you believe. And that's what Jesus sees here. You have four guys who weren't content to stand outside the door and just say, well, we'll have to come back another day when Jesus isn't as busy. No, no, no. With persistence and faith, they say, we're going to go up on a roof and we're going to break open a roof and we're going to bring our friend to Jesus because he's in desperate need. And we believe what? That Jesus can heal. And so we're going to go to great lengths to make sure that our friend gets to Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the paralytic in this story, he has also something to learn about in terms of his heart because Jesus first addresses the heart issue of this guy. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't even address the physical need at this moment. And it's teaching us that in terms of God's eternal perspective about things, that the heart is more important than the health of this guy. That's also very challenging for some of my card-carrying, charismatic friends who believe that everybody should be healed, and if you just have enough faith, everybody should be healed. Listen to me. Not everybody gets healed this side of heaven. Sometimes God's healing grace is to take somebody home. And that's hard because in our flesh, we want everybody to get well. We want everybody to be healed. We want everybody to stay and live as long as they possibly can. My faith is very simple. Listen, basically, you die of the last thing you were sick with. That's the way it goes. Everybody's going to die. Unless we get raptured, everybody's going to die of whatever the last thing is you're sick with, okay? So for us to always be more concerned about the healing of the body than the heart, we have it backwards. Now, I believe God can still heal today. He is still our healer. 
He is Jehovah, Yahweh, Rapha. He is our healer. And God has done amazing, wonderful, miraculous things. And I hope you've had the privilege to behold those things because God still heals people. He does it in his time and according to his plan. And sometimes he does it miraculously. Sometimes he does it medically. And sometimes he does it eternally by taking somebody home. And we cannot pigeonhole God into this is what you must do. We should pray and believe because he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can hope or imagine. But we have to leave the final results up to him. And whether he chooses to heal miraculously, medically, or eternally is up to God. But what was most important to Jesus was not this guy's physical condition. It was his heart. It was his spiritual condition. There are times that people will come up to pastors, you know, myself included, after services, and I welcome this. And ask us to pray for the healing of their body. And I have a a vial of oil here. And according to James chapter 5, we anoint the sick with oil. We pray for people because we believe that God can still. But one of the first things I'll ask if I don't know the person personally is, where are you first with the Lord? Because listen to me, it will do no good to pray and lay hands on somebody and ask God to touch them physically. If their heart isn't right with Jesus, they could get healed physically but end up going to hell. So what are we doing for the benefit of that person if we are not first most concerned about their heart condition? And so if somebody says to me, well, I don't really know Jesus, but I, I want you to pray for me because, you know, I'm sick. I'll first say, well, do you want to trust Christ as your Savior? Because that's more important. And I'll lead somebody to Christ if they don't know the Lord. And then I'll pray for their body because that's the order that Jesus is giving it here. The most important thing to Jesus was this guy's heart. So he starts out by saying to him, son, very tender expression to him, your sins are forgiven. And then we look at what the teachers of the law, their response, it says in verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. Notice this, they're just thinking in their heads, why does this fellow talk like this? You know, they're not, they're not believing that Jesus is, is God, they're not believing that he's Messiah. And so they add, he's blaspheming, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now this is what they're thinking. And, and what we can learn from them is that God knows our thoughts. Because they're thinking this, and immediately it says, in verse 8, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? It tells us clearly in this passage, God knows what you're thinking. God knows what I'm thinking. He knows our thoughts. And in Psalm 139, verse 2, it tells us this. In Psalm 139, 2, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Nothing is hidden from God. He knows what we say. He knows what we do. He knows what we think. He knows who we are in public. He knows who we are in private. Nothing is hidden before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows everything. So if you think, for example... That it only matters to God what you do, your behavior, and you can kind of let your thoughts run as, as much as you want. You are mistaken because God even will understand and know every thought of our mind and of our heart. And that's why Paul says that we must take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Because we can't allow just our minds to, you know, wander and fantasize and think about things that are sinful and displeasing to the Lord because we have to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And we have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ because in case you haven't lived long enough to be aware of this, that usually behavior is first born in the mind. 
where it is conceived and it is thought about and it is contemplated and then we act on it. And so we have to go to great lengths to make sure we guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus knew their thoughts. Now, what they were actually thinking technically in some aspects of what they were thinking was true in the sense that they, they're thinking to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? That part is true. Only God can forgive sins. They think it's blasphemous because they don't believe that Jesus is God. But if Jesus is God, then it's not blasphemous for Jesus to forgive sins, right? So they have some of their theology right, but not a major part of it, which is that they don't attribute deity, they don't attribute uh, the identity of Jesus as God, and so they think it's blasphemous for him to forgive sins. Well, it tells us then uh, that because Jesus knew what they were thinking, he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? In other words, if, if you want to judge by observable evidence, well, Jesus realizes that anybody could just say your sins are forgiven. What's the evidence that somebody's sins are forgiven? You can't open up somebody's heart and see that it has been cleansed and clean. And how do you know that someone has been forgiven by God? None of us can, can do that. None of us have the ability to see forgiveness. And so what Jesus is saying is you, you, you are trying to question my identity and my validity and my credibility by what you observe. And since you can't really see if somebody's sins are forgiven, then how about I do this so that you will know I'm God? And then he turns and he says to the paralytic, take up your mat and go home. And then now you can see, well, this guy's been a paralytic. And now he steps up and he rises to his feet and he takes up his mat and and he goes home. And so now they should be able to recognize that what Jesus is doing here is a testimony to who he is. It's not blasphemous to forgive sins because he is God. But because you can't see forgiveness, here, I'll go ahead and do this. Now, I wonder if the friends up on the roof were actually wondering when Jesus did the first part about forgiving the guy's sins, if Jesus really realized why they had lowered him in the first place. You know, they might be up on the roof thinking, you know, we didn't really bring him down there so he could forgive his sins. That's really sweet. But we were hoping that he'd be able to walk. So we have no clue whether they understand the whole concept, but this paralytic's going to get the whole package. He's going to get the package deal. He's going to get two for one. He's going to get his heart forgiven, sins forgiven, and he's going to get healed. Pick up your mat. Go home. And he got up, verse 12 says, and he took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. Now we come to the people in the room, and this amazed everyone And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And the lesson I learned from the people is God should never cease to amaze us. I don't ever want to take for granted in the big and small ways what God does. And I often just ask, Lord, give me eyes to see. I don't want to overlook the big ways and the small ways that you are at work on my behalf. And oh, to just get a glimpse at times of the different ways that God is moving on our behalf and taking care of us and providing for us. And when you see that, never cease to be amazed and never cease to give him thanks. Here these people are. They're seeing, they're beholding. This guy has just been forgiven and healed. And so with great amazement, they just start to praise God. May we never cease to be amazed by God. And of course, Jesus, he speaks for himself and all that he does. But what we see here in this story basically is that the friends believed God. The paralytic was forgiven and healed by God. The teachers of the law, they questioned God. 
The people praised God, and Jesus is God. That's what we see in this story. It's a wonderful story. Well, in verse 13, it says, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. Again, notice it's the, the preaching and teaching ministry that Mark emphasizes. Again, if you weren't here last week, the, the uh, picture of the ox is indicative of a servant. And Mark is emphasizing predominantly the, the servanthood of Jesus, how Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. Verse 14 says, As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, this is Matthew, but he's, but he's also known here by um, his given name, Levi, and he was given that name because it, um, it was in his genes. Anyhow, uh, it's, okay, it's a Wednesday night. I just want to make sure you're awake. All right, so, bad joke, but this is Matthew, and, uh, and he's known here by his given name, Levi, and, uh, and, he, and he's a tax collector. And Jesus just turns to him and says, uh, follow me, and it says, Levi got up and followed him. Now, you have to know that in these days, tax collectors, even more so than today, would take advantage of people and gouge people and, and, this, and this type of thing. But in particular, when you were a tax collector in the Roman Empire, first century Rome, you were entitled to line your pockets with a little bit extra, and then give Rome its portion. So a typical tax collector would sit at a booth, and there were several uh, places. This is more like a toll booth, actually, because Capernaum was uh, situated along the Via Maris, which was uh, also called the Way of the Sea, and so it was a major trade route. And there were strategic locations where tax collectors would sit in a booth, and they would collect taxes. As you start coming through, they would tax you on your livestock. They'd tax you on how many people you had and what your possessions were. And if Rome needed a dime for everything, you would double it and get a dime for yourself. And so this is a very, you need to understand this, this is part of the perspective of what Levi does here, what Matthew does. This is a very, very lucrative profession to be in. Very lucrative. And it says, and Matthew just, he left it all to follow Jesus. It isn't a prototype that, you know, if you make a lot of money, you're supposed to leave it all and follow Jesus. But the sense here is, and this is the main principle from this, it's the idea of nothing was greater to Matthew at this moment than Jesus. Nothing was greater than Jesus. And, and he followed Jesus. He got up, he left his profession, and he followed the Lord. In verse 15, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and, quote, sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with, quote, sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, King James adds to clarify it, but sinners to repentance. And that's the idea here. You're hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus. You know, you're, yeah, you're a friend of sinners. The Pharisees, who were these religious, super righteous people who were so self-righteous that they could not, for the sake of themselves, see the goodness and grace and love of Jesus, they're judging Jesus. You're hanging out with sinners. You're hanging out with tax collectors. You know, these people are friends of Rome, and these are dirty sinners. I can't believe you're having dinner with them. You're hanging out with them. But see, Jesus is a friend of sinners, and he loves all who need him. And so when they're saying this to his disciples, Jesus hears it, 
And he responds by saying, listen, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Jesus is basically saying, I've come to be a doctor. These people are spiritually sick. They need help. And I've come to be their healer and helper, not just physically, obviously, but spiritually to be the one who brings wholeness to them. They're sick. They need a doctor. I'm the doctor. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know